Well, in our recent classes, we have examined rules for walking in fellowship with respect to other believers as part and parcel of our duties of Christian fellowship. And specifically, we have studied scriptures which support one of John Owen's rules from his treatise of that name. The rule that we have been considering in recent weeks has been this, believers must maintain an unremitting care and effort to preserve unity, both in general and in particular. And surely this rule is very relevant for us today. And in our studies, we have turned to the Word of God, and we have learned about the nature of biblical unity. And we've seen three aspects to that biblical unity. There is, first of all, a spiritual unity among the people of God, which is wrought by the Holy Spirit. Secondly, there is an ecclesiastical unity or a church unity among the people of God, again, wrought by the Holy Spirit. And then thirdly, there is civil unity regarding the things of this life among the people of God. And regarding this third aspect of biblical unity, we learned last Lord's Day from the scriptures that Christians in the local church should not strive with each other about, to quote John Owen, the things of this life. Those were his words, Owen's words. Rather, Christians should live in harmony and peace with each other in the church and also in the world. I then asked the question last Lord's Day, what are some of the things of this life for which we should not be striving with one another? And there are many such things, of course, that can cause us to stumble and strive with one another wrongly, sinfully, but I identified several. Christians in a church should not strive, should not argue, should not quarrel among themselves about financial matters, about possessions and property, about politics, or about government decisions. And when Christians do strive with each other about such things, there is civil disunity between brethren, and that civil disunity foments spiritual and church disunity. And last Lord's Day, we focused our attention upon understanding Paul's words written to the Christians in the church in Corinth, Greece, those words which are given to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning with verse 1. And that chapter begins with the words, Dare any of you, having a matter against his neighbor, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints. And from that passage in 1 Corinthians 6, we learn that the Christians in Corinth were schismatic, or you might say schismatic, either way, schismatic. There was civil disunity in their midst. And consequently, they, the Christians in the church in Corinth, were defaming Christ. They were damaging his church. They were discrediting one another. And they were producing discord among themselves. Now, by way of qualification, last Lord's Day, I noted that Paul was not addressing a situation where a member of the church had committed a crime, had committed a felony. And I gave the example of a member in the church 
committing embezzlement of thousands of dollars, perhaps from his company. And if you, as a Christian, as a member of Trinity Baptist Church, if you were to learn that another member in the church had committed any crime, any crime, you must come and speak to your pastors immediately. And of course, civil authorities would also need to be involved, very likely at least. And then last Lord's Day, by way of review, we noted motives for maintaining and cultivating biblical unity. And first of all, we observed that the Lord Jesus Christ and the apostles were very earnest in their prayers and instructions regarding Christian unity. And as a result, we should also be very earnest in our prayers and in our teaching of others regarding this vital matter of Christian unity. And we observe from John 17 in particular that the Lord Jesus prayed that all of his disciples would be unified in mind, heart, will, and purpose. And therefore, we must follow the Lord's example and pray for the same realities of unity in our midst and in the churches of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we must also remember I pointed this out last Lord's Day, that Christian unity in any local church proclaims to an onlooking world that the one true and living God in love did indeed send Jesus Christ into the world to rescue sinners. We should remember that. Unity is extremely important because an onlooking world sees that unity and it proclaims to them this gospel reality that Christ came into the world to save sinners. But then a second motive for maintaining and cultivating biblical unity by way of review was this, that there are gracious results and heavenly comforts here on earth, which flow from preserving unity. And we looked in particular at that very brief psalm, Psalm 133, where we read, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And then in verse 3 of that psalm, for there, where there is biblical unity in the church, there Jehovah commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. So you see, it is good. Unity is good. It is pleasant. And it's in that church of spirit-wrought unity that God commands the blessing, even life forevermore. So that is our review. And now this morning we come to some new material it is clear from John Owen's treatise that his primary concern in writing this portion, this specific section, regarding what he called civil unity, it's very clear that his primary concern was that Christians not dispute over, as Owen said, the things of this life. They should not drag one another into a court of law. However, it is also clear from the study of additional scriptures that God would have his people live in peace with those who are in civil authority over them, wherever they may reside. 
So that's also clear from the scriptures. To live in peace with civil authorities, one must be obedient to those civil authorities according to the teaching of the word of God. And such a civil environment promotes the gospel. And I would have you turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2 this morning, and we'll read verses 1 through 4, where I think we see these truths in this brief passage, 1 Timothy 2 and verse 1. First Timothy 2, verse 1. <clears throat> I exhort, therefore, Paul, of course, wrote this to the young man and pastor Timothy. I exhort, therefore, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings be made for all men, for kings, and all that are in high place. Why? Why should we pray this way, Paul? that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and gravity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who would have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. You see here, it is good and right that we be obedient to civil authorities according to the teaching of the word of God, because such civil uh, peace promotes the gospel, and we are to pray to that very end for those who are in authority over us, kings and those that are in high places, that we may have a peaceful, tranquil life in which the gospel can make inroads into the hearts and lives of sinners. This morning, we will examine some biblical passages which teach that Christians are to be obedient to civil authorities. And by way of clarification, I need to state that my addressing this specific subject of submission to civil authorities at this time, this morning, was not prompted by the grievous murder and unfolding tragedy in Minneapolis and in other cities in our country. So the addressing of this subject, obedience to civil authorities, was not prompted by what has transpired in Minneapolis and other cities. Rather, I, along with my fellow pastors, have been discussing and contemplating addressing this subject due to the fact that diverse views have been expressed by many in our country regarding the so-called reopening of America after the coronavirus. So it's that reality, all of the diverse views and conflicting opinions about reopening America and how to deal with the virus, it's because of that that we have decided that it would be good to teach on this aspect of civil unity. And furthermore, in this lesson, by way of introduction, it is not my purpose to support or to lambast any government official or news media outlet or social media pundit or medical professional or ecclesiastical spokesman. 
My purpose is to show you the people of God, God helping me, from the scriptures, the clear teaching of God regarding our moral duty to be in subjection to all authorities whom God has placed over us, and in particular to those civil authorities whom God has placed over us. That's my purpose, to show you from the scriptures the clear teaching of God regarding our moral duty to be in subjection to all authorities, including civil authorities. We must not permit our emotions to cloud, to guide us, to control our thinking, our judgment, our speaking, and our actions. We must not permit our emotions to do that. Rather, let us have the infallible, inerrant, all-sufficient Word of God instruct, guide, and regulate our thinking, judgment, speaking, and actions. That's what we need. So as we continue in this study this morning, I must express my indebtedness to the work and writings of others, because this was a major task, and I certainly needed the help of others in addition to studying the Bible itself. And so I am indebted to the work and writings of others, Pastor Carlson, Pastor Sam Waldron, Professor John Murray, William Hendrickson, John Calvin, to name only a few. I will quote some of these individuals at different times during this lesson. So I'm thankful to God for their labors before me. So now I would like us to consider foundational truths to remember as we consider our moral duty to obey civil authorities according to the teaching of the Word of God. First of all, foundational truths to remember. I'm going to go through a number of scriptures. If you want to turn to them, you may. I'm not going to have you turn to them. I'm not going to wait for you to turn to them, but I will read them and briefly comment. In a message that I recently listened to preached by Pastor Martin, he used the illustration that You don't go first to the roof, the applications. You have to first lay a foundation, erect the walls, then put the roof on. So this is the foundational truths that we need to remember. And again, I'm going to go through them quickly because they're very important as we seek to understand our duty before God to obey civil authorities. So the first foundational truth is this. God is the creator of all men. In Genesis 1.27, we read, God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And then in Matthew 19, verse 3 and 4, the Lord Jesus was confronted by the Pharisees. There came unto him Pharisees, trying him and saying, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? And what did Jesus do on that occasion? He went back to Genesis, verse 4. He answered and said, Have you not read 
that he who made them from the beginning made them male and female. We need to remember we did not evolve from some prehistoric one-celled creature that somehow appeared in the ocean after electrical impulses hit the water. Well, where did the water come from? The point is Jesus didn't regard Genesis as fiction, but fact, not as myth, but history. And it is indeed that. Jesus is not a liar, was not a liar. So we need to remember God is our creator. A second foundational truth is this. Because of sin, all men are by nature disobedient to God and lawless. In Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul in verses 9 and following writes these words, wrote these words. What then? Are we better than they? No, and no wise. For we before laid to the charge both of Jews and Greeks, that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understands, there is none that seeks after God. They have all turned aside. And then in Romans chapter 8, verse 5 and following, the Apostle Paul reminds us this, For the mind of the flesh is death. But the mind of the Spirit is life and peace. Verse 6 of Romans 8. Verse 7. Because the mind of the flesh is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can it be. Now let me pause. Do you understand, brethren, why this is a foundational truth? Your mind by nature is opposed to the law of God. So when the word of God says to you, subject yourself to civil authorities, that remaining sin, if you're a Christian, in your natural remaining sin in your mind is saying, no, no, I I don't want to do that. It doesn't want to submit itself to the law of God. And so we need to understand this. Because of sin, all men by nature are disobedient to God and lawless. The Christian is not in that category anymore, but he has remaining sin. We need to be aware of that. Number three, God requires obedience from all men. In Genesis 2, there at creation, verse 16, And Jehovah God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it. For in the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. And so what are we to remember here? God requires obedience from all men. He required it of Adam and Eve before there was sin. God still requires that of us. And so when we read in the scriptures what God says about our obedience to civil authorities, we shouldn't say, that doesn't matter, that doesn't apply to me, I live in America. No, it does matter. In 1 Samuel 15, verse 22, we read these words, And Samuel said to King Saul, Has Jehovah as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of Jehovah? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams. You see, it's not enough to be religious. It's not enough just to come to church on the Lord's Day. We need to have a heart that obeys. That is crucial as we come to this topic. Fourthly, a fourth foundational truth, by faith in Christ, men are forgiven their sins. 
probably one of the most glorious verses in all of the Bible is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes on him should not perish but have eternal life. We need to remember this reality that when we have sinned and have disobeyed the commands of the scriptures to be obedient to civil authorities, there is forgiveness for those sins of disobedience in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, believing in him. And of course, the Philippian jailer asked Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? And what did they say? Well, first go home, clean up your act, stop being disobedient to civil authority, start doing this, start... No, they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. When you are convicted of any sin, including sins of civil disobedience, you must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be forgiven, pardoned, cleansed, saved from them. But another foundational truth, number five... Christians heartily obey all of the word of God. Christians heartily obey all of the word of God. We have to understand that. We have to believe that. We have to practice that. In John 14, verse 23 and following, Jesus answered and said unto him, it was Judas, not Iscariot, if a man love me, he will keep my word. Your sign, as it were, that testimony to your own conscience that you are a true disciple is when you actually keep the word of God, the word of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus went on to say, and my father will love him and we will come unto him, make our abode with him. He that loves me not does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So we need to remember, Christians heartily obey all of the word of God. We don't pick and choose. We don't say, well, I don't really like that command. It kind of impinges upon my self-will. And I want my way, not that way, not God's way. No, no. We need to have the attitude of the Apostle Paul recorded in Romans 7, verse 22. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. That should be true. That is true of every genuine believer in Jesus Christ. He doesn't say, oh, I don't like law. I'm not a legalist. I don't like law. No, the Christian, like Paul, says, I delight in the law of God. It is my heart's burning passion to obey all of the law of God, all of the word of God. But number six, our last foundational truth to be remembered. All men will be judged by God for their words and deeds. Would to God that I along with all of us, would remember these truths more frequently. Matthew 12, verse 36. Jesus spoke these words, And I say unto you, that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. 
For by your words you shall be justified, and by your words you shall be condemned. What you speak with reference to coronavirus, with reference to reopening America, what you speak matters. We need to be more careful than probably we have been with regards to what I speak. Well, I don't agree with the governor's decision on that. Well, maybe you don't agree, but if you speak it that way, is that a godly way of speaking? You need to remember these words of Jesus in Matthew 12. Every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. Furthermore, Paul to the Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, For we must all be made manifest before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether it is good or bad. You see, it's not just what we speak, it's how we live as well. We need to remember these foundational truths. First of all, God is the creator of all men. Secondly, because of sin, all men are by nature disobedient to God and lawless. Thirdly, God requires obedience from all men. Fourthly, by faith in Christ, men are forgiven their sins. Fifthly, Christians heartily obey all of the word of God. And sixthly, all men will be judged by God for their words and deeds. So those are the foundational truths. And now we move on to Christians and civil authorities. And now I do want you to turn to Romans chapter 13 and verse 1. And we'll read this chapter and just work our way, this portion, and work our way through it. Romans 13 and verse 1. Romans 13, 1. Let every soul be in subjection to the higher powers, For there is no power but of God, and the powers that be are ordained of God. Therefore, he that resists the power withstands the ordinance of God. And they that withstand shall receive to themselves judgment. For rulers are not a terror to the good work, but to the evil. And would you have no fear of the power? Do that which is good, and you shall have praise from the same." For he is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do that which is evil, be afraid. For he bears not the sword in vain. For he is a minister of God, an avenger for wrath to him that does evil. Therefore, you must needs be in subjection, not only because of the wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For this cause you pay tribute also, for they are ministers of God's service, attending continually upon this very thing. Render to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. There we stop our reading of this passage. Keep your Bible open to this passage. I'll now refer to these verses. First of all, from this passage, notice 
all human authorities are ordained by God. We see that in verse 1. For there is no power but of God, and the powers that be, the existing powers on this earth, that's what Paul was saying. He wasn't talking theoretically. The powers that be are ordained of God. And here I quote A.A. Hodge on this very verse. It's very good for us as Americans, what he wrote. Some have supposed that the right or legitimate authority of human government has its foundation ultimately in, quote, the consent of the governed, or, quote, the will of the majority, or in some imaginary social compact entered into by the forefathers of the race at the origin of social life. It is self-evident, however, from this passage, that the divine will is the source of all government, end quote. So all human authorities, governments included, are ordained by God. Secondly, all men are commanded to subject themselves to human authorities. You see that in verse 1. Let every soul, not, there's no exceptions, no exemptions. Let every soul be in subjection to the higher powers. The apostle, writing by inspiration, wanted everyone to subject himself voluntarily to the then existing governing authorities. That's a quote from William Hendrickson. We are to voluntarily subject ourselves to the existing governing authorities. Notice now this uh, quote from Professor Murray. The implication of Paul's words here in this verse is that no person is exempt from this subjection. No person enjoys special privileges by which he or she may ignore or feel himself free to violate the ordinances of magisterial authority. You see what Professor Murray was writing here. No one is exempt. Let every soul be in subjection. You're not at liberty to say, well, I don't have to do that. Murray goes on. He says, neither indifference nor faith offers immunity. You can't say, well, I'm an atheist, so it doesn't matter. I don't believe your Bible anyway. No. Uh-uh. You can't say, well, in my understanding of the Bible, my faith allows me the liberty to not obey civil authorities. Professor Murray says that's wrong, because that's not what's here in the Word of God. To be in subjection, it's very important to notice this from this verse, verse 1. To be in subjection to higher powers, specifically to civil authorities, for that's clearly the context here in Romans 13. It meant to be obedient to existing civil authorities, and this obedience was joined to a clear recognition of one's subordination to the civil authority, as well as a willing compliance to their authority. I'm not trying to impress anyone with Greek. I'm not a Greek expert by far. 
There are others who are pastors in this church that are, but I'm not one of them. But I can read good commentaries and understand this word subjection. It's this word hupotasso. So it means what I've just described here. It is an obedience to existing civil authorities, a clear recognition of subordination to those authorities, and a willing compliance to their authorities. You see, it's a mind matter, and it's a heart matter, and it's a will matter. And that can only be done ultimately by the grace and power of the resurrected Jesus Christ in union with him. But notice thirdly from Romans 13, to oppose human authorities is to oppose God. Brethren, we have to understand this. This is what God's word clearly is stating. Therefore, he that resists or opposes the power withstands the ordinance of God. Verse 2, The Apostle Paul was not commanding unlimited compliance. He was not commanding absolute mindless subjection to the civil magistrate. Paul was fully aware of his Old Testament scriptures. He knew the various historical situations, such as when Daniel did not obey the king's decree, the king's law, prohibiting prayer to any other god other than the king himself. Paul knew about Daniel. Of course he did. But Paul is making it clear that the believer is to respect the state and not make himself the final arbiter. Clearly, Paul is giving the ordinances of the Roman authorities a very exalted place. And here I'm quoting Leon Morris in his commentary on this passage. Clearly, Paul is giving the ordinances of the Roman authorities a very exalted place and expecting that his readers will obey them, the Roman authorities. Morris goes on, to resist the authorities God has set in place is to resist what God has commanded. And such resistors, Morris goes on to say, will bring judgment upon themselves. Brethren, this is serious stuff. This is not something you should say, well, I'm an American, or no, I don't like that, or I don't believe that. This is the Bible. This is why I went through those foundational principles, those foundational truths. We are to heartily obey all of the scriptures as Christians. But notice, fourthly, to oppose human authorities, which Morris has just mentioned, but to make it very clear, to oppose human authorities brings God's judgment upon oneself. Verse 2, they that withstand shall receive to themselves judgment. The judgment which such disobedience to civil authorities brings upon the guilty may be punishment inflicted by the civil authorities. But of course, ultimately, that's really also God's punishment because God is the one who has placed that civil authority in position, in power, given that civil authority the sword to give out justice. Now, I know there are questions. Well, what if the civil authority is not 
giving out justice, but rather injustice. Those are questions that could be addressed, but I'm not addressing them here because that's not what this passage is addressing. We need to first understand what our moral duty according to the word of God is before such civil authority. It's possible also that God in his sovereign providence may bring a punishment upon the disobedient citizen. That's also possible. But to oppose human authorities brings God's judgment upon oneself. But notice, fifthly, from Romans 13, rulers, civil authorities, are ministers of God. That's what Paul calls them. Verse 4, for he is a minister of God. Again, in verse 4, for he is a minister of God. The civil authority we need to understand is literally God's deacon, because that's the word that's used, diakonos. The civil authority is literally God's deacon. That is, civil authorities are those who execute the commands of the living God. And for this reason, Paul says, Christians are to subject themselves to their civil authorities and not resist them. Sixth, from Romans 13, civil authorities minister God's justice. Verse 4 again, he is a minister of God to you for good, but if you do that which is evil, be afraid, for he is not, does not bear the sword in vain, for he is a minister of God, an avenger for wrath to him that does evil." And again, someone may object, but what if the civil authority executes injustice? We need to also remember the time in which Paul lived when he wrote these very words. He lived in the Roman Empire, far from a just civilization, far from a just government in every respect. He was conscious of that reality that he and the people to whom he wrote, who lived in the city of Rome, the capital of the Roman Empire, that they were in an empire which was indeed very unrighteous and unjust on many occasions. Nevertheless, he says these truths, wrote these truths to those Christians in Rome, and we need to remember them. But number seven, Christians must be in subjection to the civil authorities for conscience' sake. Verse 5, you must do this for conscience' sake. Christians must subject themselves to civil authorities because of their conscience. Paul is giving another motivation to believers to obey their civil authorities. They should obey because it is right in the sight of God. That's a legitimate and very good motive. I will obey. Yes, there are exceptions, but I will obey in the sight of God because this is right in the sight of God. And by obeying, I will keep a good conscience before God. And when you have a good conscience before God, you have great liberty in God, liberty in prayer, liberty in reading the word of God, liberty in hearing the word of God, liberty in witnessing the gospel to others. And that's what we should want, a good conscience, so we should obey the civil authority. Number eight, Christians must respect their civil authorities. Notice this from verse seven of Romans 13, render to all their dues 
tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom. And those words are referring to tax issues. Tax issues. Custom is not referring to polite greetings of somebody else. I should say hello if I see you. No, it's customs as in customs duties. When you import, export. Tribute to whom tribute is due. Custom to whom custom is to do is due. And notice in particular, fear to whom fear. And it is the word phobos. Maybe mispronouncing that from which we get that word phobia. But it means respect, fear, a proper fear. Fear to whom fear is due. Honor to whom honor is due. Verse 7 there. So notice here, quoting Leon Morris, Paul is talking about the attitude which Christians should have to their civil authorities. He is saying that Christians should have a respectful attitude to those in high places, not for secular reasons, such as, well, they are very important, or they are wealthy, or they are powerful. No, but, Morris says, because God has made them his ministers. Their work confers on them a dignity that Christians should observe. End quote. So we are to respect our civil authorities. The Apostle Peter, of course, underscores these same truths of Romans 13 in his letter where he wrote these words to Christians of the dispersion, dispersed in every place, be subject to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or unto governors as sent by him, God, for vengeance on evildoers and for praise to them that do well. For so is the will of God, that by well-doing you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. And then Peter concludes with honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. But now, let's look, Christian honoring of civil authorities more specifically. I know I'm going through quickly, but I hope you see from Romans 13 those valuable truths. We must obey those in civil authority over us. But now, how do we do that? In the third place, Christian honoring of civil authorities. First of all, the Christian's heart and speech must manifest goodwill and mercy towards civil authorities. The Christian's heart and speech must manifest goodwill and mercy towards civil authorities. In Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, verse 21, Jesus spoke these words. Matthew 5, 21, You have heard that it was said to them of old time, You shall not kill. And whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. And whosoever shall say, You fool, shall be in danger of the hell of fire. 
The principles of this passage, these words of the Lord Jesus Christ, can be rightly applied to other relationships beyond that of a brother with another brother. They do apply to that. Jesus said that here in Matthew 5, but they can also be applied to other relationships. Christians must not harbor sinful anger toward a civil authority. I'm not talking about righteous anger. Sinful anger should not be there in your heart toward a civil authority, toward anybody. Christians also should not speak words of derision toward a civil authority. Jesus said you should not speak such derisive words, racha, to, some other, to another brother. Well, I'm applying it to the Christian toward the civil authority. You should not be speaking words of derision toward a civil authority. You should not be speaking words of murder toward a civil authority. It is sinful speech to say, well, that governor's just an idiot. That's sinful speech. It is unbecoming of a Christian man or woman to speak that way. And it's actually sinful to think and feel that way. That's what Jesus is teaching us. But secondly, the Christian speech towards civil authorities must not grieve the Holy Spirit. It should be obvious that's what you're doing if you speak that way of a civil authority. He's just an idiot. You're grieving the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 4, verse 29, the Apostle Paul wrote these words, Let no corrupt speech... Proceed out of your mouth, but such as is good for edifying, as the need may be, that it may give grace to them that hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, in whom you were sealed unto the day of redemption. You see, dear brethren, you're not to allow such unhealthy, corrupt, putrefying speech come out of your mouth, which of course comes out of your heart, but rather speak that which will build up, not tear down, that it may actually give grace, and that in the process you don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Thirdly, the Christian must respect civil authorities and commit the wrongdoing of such civil authorities to God commit the wrongdoing of civil authorities to God. And here I'm turning to Jude 1, verse 8. Jude 1, verse 8. Yet in like manner, these also in their dreamings defile the flesh and reject authority and rail at dignities. But, verse 9 of Jude 1, Michael the archangel when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses. Michael the archangel dared not bring against him, the devil, a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. 
So what I'm saying is we draw out of this passage here in Jude 1 that we are to respect civil authorities, not rail at them, not reject them, and not bring accusations against them. Again, there's a righteous way to do such things. I understand that. But we should commit the wrongdoing of civil authorities to God and say, Lord, you can correct. I believe you're in control. You can rebuke this sinful civil authority. You can do it. Lord, I ask you to do it. That's the principle there. But number four, the Christian must remember God's grace shown to him as he relates to civil authorities. And here I turn to Luke 6 and verse 35, where Jesus said these words, But love your enemies. I'm not saying the civil authority is your enemy, but Jesus was stating very clearly, if you have someone who he regards you as his enemy, and you have that sense there's no peace between us, in that sense he is my enemy, Jesus said, what should you do? Love your enemies and do them good, and lend never despairing, and your reward shall be great. And you shall be sons of the Most High. Why? For he is kind toward the unthankful and evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. And judge not, and you shall not be judged. And condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Release, and you shall be released. Give and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, shall they give into your bosom. For with what measure you meet it, it shall be measured to you again. You see, Christians must remember God's grace shown to them and then relate to civil authorities in the light of that overwhelming reality. Be like God. Be godly. Be like Christ. Be a Christian. Remember, be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. But fifthly, the Christian must allow other Christians to differ from him on matters of judgment. And here I turn to Romans 14 and verse 1 passage dealing with Christian liberty. Christians must allow other Christians to differ from him, from them, on matters of judgment. Romans 14, verse 1, But him that is weak in faith receive, yet not for disputes over doubtful things. One man has faith to eat all things, but he that is weak eats herbs or vegetables. Verse 3, let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. Who are you that judge the servant of another? To his own Lord he stands or falls. Yes, He shall be made to stand, for the Lord has power to make him stand. 
You see here what Paul is saying concerning Christian liberty. Here's a brother who, as an example, drinks wine to the glory of God. He doesn't get drunk. He doesn't get tipsy. He sees it as a good gift from God. He drinks wine to the glory of God. He should not now judge the Christian who says, I will not drink wine. I will not drink alcoholic beverage. He should not say, well, come on. Don't you understand? You have the liberty to do that. He should not speak that way or think that way of his brother. And the brother who doesn't drink the alcoholic beverage should not say, well, you must be a bit loose in your morals because you drink wine. He shouldn't think that way or speak that way. Have that attitude. That's what Paul is saying. And on these matters related to the coronavirus and the reopening of America, there are going to be differing judgments of what we do, what we don't do. At this time, at that time, now or in a month's time. And we all have judgments. But we need to not be censorious, sour, harsh, bitter towards those who disagree with us. But sixthly, the Christian must remember that other saints have been in subjection to ungodly civil authorities. We're not the first Christians who've lived on planet Earth. And we're not the first Christians who have been in situations where the governing authorities are not righteous. Although murderously pursued by King Saul, David manifested submission to Saul. He said on one occasion in 1 Samuel 24, Saul had gone into the cave in order to basically go to the bathroom. David and his men were in a deeper part of the cave. They realized what was happening. David's men said to David, David, God has given King Saul into your hands. You can now go and kill him. God has said, you're going to be the next king. Go ahead. King Saul was in authority. King Saul was murderous. King Saul was even insane. King Saul was unreasonable. King Saul was evil and wicked. King Saul was unjust. What did David do? He said, absolutely not. He didn't use those words, but in summarizing it, he said, Jehovah forbid that I should do this thing unto my Lord, Jehovah's anointed to put forth my hand against him, seeing he is Jehovah's anointed. We have to think that way about those who are in civil authority over us. And we're not the first ones who have had rulers who are not fair and just and righteous. It's not approving of the sin. David wasn't approving of King Saul's sins. He was recognizing that he was Jehovah's anointed. Ezra and Nehemiah served under the Persian king, Artaxerxes. Daniel served under various kings in Babylon. The Lord Jesus Christ, his apostles, his disciples of the early centuries of the Roman Empire lived under that often unrighteous rule and realm. So, brethren, the Bible God's infallible, inerrant, all-sufficient word makes it abundantly clear that God requires, and here I'm quoting Pastor Carlson, God requires biblically informed, conscientious obedience to authority from everyone 
especially Christians, end quote. And when a civil authority or any human authority explicitly commands us to do that which is sinful, to explicitly disobey God's law, then we are to obey God rather than men. However, there are times, and here I'm going to quote Pastor Sam Waldron, there are times when human authorities, including civil authorities, here I quote Pastor Waldron, there are times when human authorities, including civil authorities, may command us to do things that are not unlawful. So they're commanding us to do things that are not unlawful, even when they exceed their jurisdiction. We may out of self-interest, prudence, or some other motivation, choose to conform to requirements that do not require us to sin, even though we do not have an obligation to do so, end quote. See what he's saying. There are times when a governing authority may overstep their jurisdiction. They command something, and we may obey them because they're not commanding us explicitly to do something sinful. We see they've overstepped the bounds of their jurisdiction of authority, but they're not commanding us to do something that is sinful. And we may say, okay, I will still submit and obey wholeheartedly, cheerfully, with a good conscience before God. And in closing, brethren, we need to remember the supreme example of the Lord Jesus Christ. For hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously, who his own self bare our sins in his body upon the tree. The Lord of glory, the creator of the universe, the Son of God, the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, who his own self bear our sins in his body upon the tree, that we, having died unto sins, might live unto righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. Brethren, the Lord Jesus Christ is our supreme example of how to live in this day, in our country, in the light of the coronavirus, reopening up of America, all of the differing views that are out there and perspectives and judgments, and also in the light of all that has sadly, tragically been taking place in Minneapolis and other parts of the country. Brethren, let us be guided by the word of God, obey the word of God, follow the Lord Jesus Christ, trust in him, remember what he has already accomplished for us, his people, in his death on the cross.
So let's now close in prayer. Our God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his blood that washes away all our sins. Come by your spirit and impress indelibly upon our minds and hearts and souls the truths of your word which we've studied this morning, that we may all be bright, shining lights without any blame here in this perverse world for the praise of the glory of your grace in Jesus Christ. Please, Lord, work in our hearts and lives in these very difficult days. We ask for these mercies, giving you our thanksgiving for your word and for your son. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.